0: Well, if we haven't had a chance to meet, uh, my name is Joe Gordon. I'm the Executive Pastor of Ministries here. And so I had the privilege of working with really every ministry and every campus at LifePoint to see what God is doing here. And let me tell you, he is doing some incredible things. And uh, Pat asked me to share uh, today's message and wrap up the Sermon on the Mount. So if you haven't done so already, would you open your Bibles? with me to Matthew chapter seven. Matthew chapter seven. I'm gonna begin in verse 15 and finish out the sermon. Matthew seven, verse 15. Jesus says, beware of false prophets. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter in the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house. But it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. This is the word of the Lord. Well, Our summer's coming to an end. I'm sure most of you finished your summer vacations. We finished our summer vacation. And while I was thinking about summer vacations, I was reminded of a summer vacation my wife and I took a couple years ago. We decided to take our kids to SeaWorld. They'd never been to SeaWorld Orlando, and we're excited to take them there. So what I did is I, like many of you, went online and looked for the cheapest tickets. I found them, I purchased them. We made our way to Orlando. When the day came for us to come to the park, we fought our way through the Florida traffic, if you know what I'm talking about. We made our way to the parking lot. I think I was $20 lighter in my wallet after parking there. And then we made ourselves to the turnstile. And I showed the turnstile attendant my phone. It had the ticket right on there. And so he scanned it, and it made a sound I will never forget. You know that sound of rejection, that bonk sound? And I thought, well, he must not know what he's doing. He should rescan it one more time. So I asked him to do so, and he scanned it again. Again, that bonk sound. Rejected. Well, I don't know what to tell this guy. I mean, I bought this on the SeaWorld website. I bought it for the right number of people. I bought it for the right date. What could be wrong? So I asked him to examine the ticket and tell me why we should not enter into SeaWorld. And he says the following, oh, you have SeaWorld tickets, all right. But these are for SeaWorld San Diego and not SeaWorld Orlando. Oh. Embarrassment, shame, horror. You know what the worst part about that story is, though? I couldn't enter SeaWorld. I couldn't experience the fun and the memory-making experience that SeaWorld offers. I couldn't enter. Why? Because my tickets were wrong. Well, in this final passage on the Sermon on the Mount, we see a similar scenario playing out. But it is way worse than not being able to enter SeaWorld. You see, in this scenario, at the end of time, on the day of judgment, there will be those who can't enter the kingdom of heaven. You see, there will be people who think they have the right tickets, There will be people who think they are saved. But they are not. They are deceiving themselves. And on the day of judgment, they will be rejected. They will not be able to enter the kingdom of heaven. Well, I don't know about you. But this type of passage is the kind that makes me examine myself. This is the kind of passage that motivates me to confirm that I'm saved. Because I don't want to, on the day of judgment, to hear from Jesus away from me. I never knew you. What about yourself? Could you be self-deceived? Doesn't it make common sense to just at least double check your ticket, to make sure that you are truly born again, that you are truly saved, that you are truly a deceiver. But this kind of leads me to another question. How would I know whether or not I'm deceiving myself? What proof do I have that I am saved? Well, in the passage, we see Five proofs that people think prove that they're saved. And none of these five proofs are bad in and of themselves. But I call these proofs weak proofs. In other words, if you are banking that you are saved on one of these five reasons, you could be deceiving yourself. So what I want to do this morning... Is I want to take some time going through these five weak proofs. And I want you to ask yourself, am I banking my eternal security on one of these things? And then, when I finish going through those five weak proofs, I want to go to the best proof that Jesus gives us. So, with no further ado, if you're taking notes, let's begin. First, The first weak proof that people oftentimes use to determine whether or not they're saved is that they believe their spiritual experiences are what determine whether or not they're saved. In other words, spiritual experiences are not proof that you are saved. Did you notice in verse 22, we see that these deceived people thought they were saved by experiencing the supernatural stuff. Check this out. They saw demons cast out. They saw crazy miracles. I imagine these things included healings. And yet, even though they experienced these powerful spiritual experiences, those things are not proof that they are saved. And I think this misconception is very common in our world, especially in our church. I have asked people, how do they know that they are saved? And what they were often telling me is about some experience that will give them goosebumps. You know, it's like they were sitting in church and they heard that song or the preacher said something and all of a sudden they experienced a tremendous amount of peace. And these individuals look at that experience and say, see, that is proof I am saved. That was supernatural. But I want you to tell today from the scriptures, just because you experience something supernatural doesn't mean that you are saved. You could be, unfortunately, deceiving yourself. Why? Well, first, emotions could be deceptive. Uh, a few years ago, I saw a uh, video of a guy who got a tattoo of the Seattle Seahawks winning Super Bowl forty-nine. You know what the problem with that is? They lost Super Bowl 49. Why did he do such a thing? Because he had a gut feeling that they were going to win. But unfortunately, emotions can be truly deceptive. But here's the thing even if you get the emotions aside and just look at the experience, experiences that we have as humans. Don't equate to much, because Judas himself experienced wonderful things. He saw the uh, miraculous healed, and yet he is called the son of perdition. And so spiritual experiences are not proof of our salvation. A second false proof. Second, people will often see spiritual gifts as proof of their salvation, People will often see spiritual gifts as proof of their salvation. Again, in verse 22, we learn that there are people who are prophesying. And in this text, prophesying probably means foretelling the future. That's a pretty miraculous spiritual gift. And yet, what we see here is that these people are not saved. Rather, they are destined to hell. So God can do incredible things through us, and yet... That is not proof that we are saved. And I think this could be surprising upon first rub, but upon greater reflection, we know this is the case. We have all seen preachers and missionaries and teachers and leaders and evangelists who are doing incredible work for the Lord. People are coming to know Jesus. Their eyes are being opened to the word of God. And yet, we read the rest of their story, and they walk away from the Lord. You see, just because God does something miraculous through us doesn't mean that we are truly saved. Now, what does that mean for us? You might be thinking, well, I'm not a missionary. I'm not some fantastic teacher or proclaimer of God's word. Yes, but I think we all have the temptation to look at our service, how we serve the Lord, to determine our salvation. But just because you serve the well the Lord well every day of the week that does not mean you are saved. Yes, unbelievers will probably not serve the Lord if they're proclaiming unbelief. But even if you are serving the Lord that doesn't mean that you are truly saved. Third, a verbal profession of faith is not proof of our salvation. Now, this one, this is the hot take of them all. Notice in verse 21, Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Get this proclaiming Jesus as Lord with your mouth does not save you. Now, you might be thinking, wait a minute, been in church long enough. I know what Paul says. I know my Bible. You see, in Romans 10 9, Paul says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Doesn't that contradict what you're saying? Isn't that contradicting even what Jesus is saying? Again, Even on this side of Judgment Day, we know people who proclaim with their mouths that Jesus is Lord and then later on walk away from Him. Saying Jesus is Lord is not a magic spell, it is not some sort of charm that if you just pronounce this Jesus is Lord, that you will automatically be saved. And therefore, since This doesn't save us. We should not be putting our trust in this as proof that we're saved. Fourth, associating with Christ and his people is not proof of our salvation. Associating with Christ and his people is not proof of our salvation. Take, for example, the false prophets we see here in verses 15 through 20. These men and women who hung out with Christians as their ministers. That's what we're seeing happening in this passage. And yet these false prophets are false they are far from God. And so, my friends, there's no such thing as salvation by proximity. There's no such thing as salvation by affiliation. We read this same principle in Luke 13, 22. Again, another frightening passage, but a good one, because Jesus loves us. He says the following. Uh, The Bible says the following. He, Jesus, went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And he said to them, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door saying, Lord, open to us. Then he will answer you, I do not know where you come from. Now, check this out, verse 26. Then you will begin to say, We ate and drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. In other words, even though these individuals were close to Jesus, were close to his people, and they thought That saved them. In reality, they were deceiving themselves. They truly were not saved. Just because you come to this church doesn't mean you're saved. I heard somebody once say, just because you're in a garage doesn't mean you're a car. In the same way, just because you're in here this morning, that doesn't mean you're a Christian. Just because you're a church member, it doesn't mean you're a Christian just because you attend a life, church, a life group, that doesn't mean you're a Christian. Proximity to Jesus and his people is not sure proof that we are truly saved. And finally, believing the right doctrine or beliefs is not proof that we're saved. Again, we see in verse 21 that these deceived believers say, Lord, Lord, well, that's good doctrine because they're Right? Jesus is the Lord. They're right on the money there, and yet they're wrong to believe that they're saved. James, the half-brother of Jesus, says something very similar in James 2, verse 19. He says, You believe God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. The demons have better doctrine than all of us, and yet they are damned. Right doctrine does not save us. It is not good proof that we are saved. Now, I want to be clear here, because this this is the type of message that can create all kinds of confusion. It is a fine thing to have powerful spiritual experiences. It is vital to use your spiritual gifts. All true believers must confess Jesus as Lord with their mouths. It is critical to surround yourself with God's people. And we must have the right doctrine. But we can't allow those things to be the primary means of our insurance. If we do, we may be deceiving ourselves into believing we're Christians when we're really not Christians at all. So I hope you're asking yourself at this very moment, well, what's the proof that I'm saved? How do I know that I'm a Christian? How do I know that I'm not deceiving myself? Well, Jesus gives us the assurance in the same passage. He tells us multiple times. You probably caught on. In verse 20, he says, You will recognize them by their fruits. You see, in the Old Testament and New Testament, many individuals are wondered how they know whether a prophet was a true prophet or a false prophet. And instead of listening necessarily to their words... The Bible teaches us over and over again to look at their behavior, to look at their actions. You will know them by their fruit. Again, in verse 23, he says, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. This is a reference to behavior. You're not a believer if you're a worker of lawlessness. If your life is characterized by sin, You are not a believer. So let me pull all this together. The primary proof of your salvation is not going to church. The primary proof of salvation is not walking an aisle. The primary proof of salvation is not being baptized. All these things are good things. But the primary proof of your salvation is your obedience and my obedience to the commands of Christ. It is listening to what he preached in the Sermon on the Mount and doing it. We must be the ones who repent of anger and lust. We must be the ones who stay true to our covenant of marriage and not divorce our spouses. We must be the ones who are true to our oaths. We must be the ones who forgive those who have hurt us. We must be the ones who love our enemies. We must be the ones who are generous for the money. We must be the ones who have to give to the needy. See, everything that Jesus said in the Sermon on Mount before, he is saying, those people who obey those things, these are the individuals who are tr- truly saved. You still don't believe me? Well, Jesus gives a parable. It's actually the first parable in the book of Matthew. And unfortunately, this parable is oftentimes misunderstood. You see, many people believe that this parable is teaching us that Jesus is the rock, that he is the rock, And the storms of life may come across our lives, but those people who have Jesus as their foundation will survive the storm. And those people who don't have Jesus as a foundation will not survive the storm. That is true that Jesus is the rock oftentimes in the Bible. It is also true that Jesus will help us persevere any trouble that we go through. But that's not what this parable is about. Listen to what he says here. He says, quote, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. So what is he talking about? Jesus is saying that all the commands he gave us in the Sermon on the Mount... These are the people who obey those commands are the people who are building their house, their life on the rock. He is not the rock. The person who hears his words and does them, these are people who are building their houses on the rock. And this storm metaphor is oftentimes used in the Bible, not as just tribulation, but the day of judgment. And you can read about that in Ezekiel 38, So again, let me pull this together. This parable is about one day, there'll be a day of judgment and it will come across your life. And that judgment will determine whether or not you are a believer. And it's the people who obey his word, the people who obey what he taught before in a sermon on the mount, those people are the ones who will survive the day of judgment. And the people who don't do what he asked of us, They will not survive the day of judgment. They will be destroyed. They, sadly, and in a horrifying way, will go to hell. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm feeling nervous. This is the kind of teaching that can give me a panic attack. Is Jesus saying here that I have to be perfect in order to be saved? Because I don't know what type of upbringing you had in the faith, but I was taught We are saved by grace through faith alone. It doesn't sound like what I'm saying here is that I'm saved by the blood of Christ alone. And it is true that we are saved by grace through faith alone. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, a famous passage. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of work so that no one should boast. We are saved by grace through faith alone and Christ's death for our sins. So is Paul in Ephesians contradicting Jesus here in Matthew? No, because let's go back to Ephesians. The very next verse, verse 10, Paul says the following, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared before him that we should walk in them. Yes, we are saved by grace through faith alone. And to be clear, we are not saved by grace plus works. We are saved by grace alone, but true Christians will obey. And this is some modern, newfangled Joe Gordon teaching. Listen to what John Calvin says. It is therefore faith alone which justifies. Justifies is a technical word meaning made right with God. And yet the faith which justifies is not alone. Just as it is the heat alone of the sun which warms the earth. And yet in the sun it is not alone because it is constantly conjoined with light. There's a lot of words there. So let me quote another reformer, Martin Luther, who says, We are not saved by works, but if there be no works... There must be something amiss with faith. And you know what? I think everybody in the world gets this. This isn't super complicated. I was reading a book on business and leadership and so on, and I read the following. So this isn't necessarily a Christian book. I read this quote from Jim Dethmer, Diana Chapman, and Kaylee Clint. Listen, commitment is a statement of what is. You can know what you're committed to by your Results, not by what you say your commitments are. We're all committed. We are all producing results. The result is proof of a commitment. True saving faith shows itself in our obedience. Can you say that you had a supernatural encounter with God and not have a changed life? Let's say I came here late. Let's say I apologize to you and the Travis, Pat, sorry, I'm late. I was really late today. And Pat's like, oh, hey man, why are you late? And I said, well, you know i got a flat in my tire and i was changing it on the you know on the road i was on that 24 the i24 and the lug nut just kind of fell off so i went out on the highway and i grabbed the lug nut and when i was there i got hit by a logging truck coming of all things i hope pat and you and travis would think either i'm lying or i'm crazy Listen, as Christians, we are claiming that we encountered the God of the universe. Infinite, eternal, perfect, holy. That we heard the gospel of Jesus Christ, that God sent his son to die for our sins so that whoever believes in him will not perish all your sins have been washed away because God loves you so very much. He sent his own son. Parents, you get this. He sent his own son to die for his enemies. That doesn't change your life. That doesn't create a heart that desires to obey what he told us. Now, you might be thinking, but Joe, see, I came to know Christ as a child, like the baptisms we saw. Like, there was no, like, you know, major turn in my life. And I get that. And there's some truth to that. But the fruit Jesus is looking for is a growing conformity to the ways of his kingdom. A growing conformity. Did you get that? Are we more truthful, forgiving, prayerful, generous, humble, and pure than when we first believed? Now, you might be thinking, I, I agree, but how much obedience do I need in order to show proof that I'm saved? Like, what type of measuring tool do I use for that? What type of ruler do I use to determine whether or not I have enough obedience to determine I'm saved? And I, I thought about this a lot this week, and I thought, you know, I think that's the wrong question to ask. I think that's the wrong question to ask. Because if you, if you try to answer that question, two things are likely to happen. The first thing is that you can easily just add a little bit of the Sermon on the Mount to your life and continue to deceive yourself into believing you're saved. And that is a bad move. Don't want you to do that. Or if you're like me, a little neurotic... Um, you are going to be the kind of person that's always going to think, because your conscience is also sensitive, that you just don't live up to those standards, and you're always going to doubt your salvation. And I don't want my, I don't want anybody here to think um, that after this message, um, if they are saved, to think I'm not saved. My goal here is twofold. For those of you who are deceiving yourselves, I want you. To recognize that. And that you've been banking on false proofs. But those who are truly saved. Who have a sense of conscience. My hope is today. Is that you're going to have your faith built up. And you'll have greater assurance that you truly are saved. And so I don't want you to ask the question. How much obedience do I need to have? I think that's just not going to work out well for you. What I think is a better question is. What must I do to be saved? What must I do to be saved? And have I done it? What must I do to be saved, and have I done it? Well, I think Jesus answers this in the passage as well. Did you notice in Matthew 7, 21 through 23, Jesus doesn't rebuke these self-identified believers for calling him Lord per se. He rebukes them for calling him Lord and not obeying what he commanded them. You see... There is a false gospel of easy believism in our world. And uh, it's not spoken up as much, but there used to be a many teach, uh, churches that taught a difference between being a believer and being a disciple. And what I am saying today is that they're one and the same thing. See, Jesus is talking about a kingdom. Remember, he said here, about entering the kingdom of heaven every kingdom has a king and so my question to you is is Jesus your king let's say I asked you to imagine that a president of the United States a living president one you like knocked on your door and said hey can I come into your house I hope you'll be like, oh my goodness, well, I haven't cleaned everything up, but yeah, feel free, come on in. And so he comes on in and starts making small talk with you and he says, hey, I was wondering if I can move this couch around, put it from this wall to that wall. You okay if I do that? Now you might be thinking, you know, independence, you know, I'm not gonna let you do anything in my house, but my guess is you're gonna respect that person enough and you're not gonna question it too much. You'll be like, yeah, sure, feel free to move it wherever you want, I don't care. Why? It's because you recognize that person has authority over your life. In the same way, when you become a Christian, when you are born again, what you're ultimately saying is that Jesus is my king, and you're inviting Jesus into the house of your life. But he ain't moving around furniture. He is moving around your dreams, your desires, your affections, every part of your life. And so, when you become a Christian, you are submitting to his authority. You are recognizing that he is the one who has absolute ownership of your life. Why? Because he bought it with what? His blood. And check this out Jesus is truly simply just asking us to submit to his lordship, he's the one who's doing the restoration. If I submit my will to his, he is the one who's producing fruit in my life. I'm not just manufacturing fruit. The Holy Spirit within you and within me and me is the one who is creating the fruit. He is the one who is changing my affections so that I obey him. And what's beautiful about this is that now, my obedience is not a facade is something that's sincere. And I'm not merely obeying out of fear that he will punish me or a desire to be blessed by him. I am truly obeying him because I love him. He is my king. He is the one who died for me. So I think it's good to look at our obedience as proof of our salvation. But proof of your salvation is not the same as being saved. What I want you to do at the end of my message this morning is, am I saved? You know, I began my sermon with a story about being rejected from SeaWorld. Well, I want to finish that up. I didn't tell you everything. What we ended up doing is calling customer service and they gave us a refund and we bought new tickets and we were able to enter the park and have a great time and lots of wonderful memories. I want you to know that when it regards to salvation... It's not too late for you. You can still enter the kingdom of heaven if you haven't done so already. Second Corinthians 6.2 says, now is the day of salvation. Today could be the day that you commit your life to Christ. You say, Jesus, you are my king. I am no longer gonna live a facade. I'm no longer gonna bank on these false, or I should say weak proofs. But rather, I'm gonna bank on your blood and let you create the obedience within me. Would you bow your heads? Close your eyes. I just don't want this to be another message that you hear and then leave and whether you thought it was good or not. My point here is to encourage you, if you haven't done so already, to commit your life to Christ. You don't have to speak out some sort of words, you don't have to walk forward. All you have to simply do is submit to Jesus as Lord. That's what it means to be born again. If that is a decision that you want to make or that you just made sometime in the last 30 seconds, would you raise your hand as a sign of commitment? That is, the sign, that is what you want to do right now. Raise your hand. Wonderful. I see them. You can put down your hands. Let me pray. Father in heaven, I am so grateful for the individuals who have determined to make Jesus their savior this day and I pray that you give them a burst of assurance that they would know they are in your grip and nothing can remove them from it. They are secure. For those, Lord, who have more questions, I pray that this uh, would be the type of message that would give them clarity they would have greater confidence after today as they reflect upon their life. Lord, for all of us, the goal of obedience isn't to earn your respect or your honor. The goal of obedience, Lord, is to please you, make much of the name of Jesus, and I pray that as our neighbors and our friend and family see our obedience, they would see that there's something different about us as Christians. I trust you can do that thing, Lord. It's in your name we pray, amen.